Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's special edition of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Todd Gardner, who was the founder and former CEO of SaaS Capital and now the founder of SaaS Advisors. Today, we'll be covering three main topics all centered around the Silicon Valley Bank collapse with Todd, and those include the details behind the Silicon Valley Bank insolvency, second, What did we learn about the financial infrastructure behind the majority of the B2B technology startup ecosystem? And third, lessons learned that SaaS B2B founders, CEOs, and CFOs can take to the bank. A little play on words there. Todd, can you take a moment to give an overview of your background and why it is so germane to this topic of financing and financial stability in the SaaS industry? Sure. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me. Yeah, brings back memories for sure. So I was actually a banker my very first job out of college. I was a commercial lender. Um, I did some consulting and then I went into venture. And then I launched SaaS Capital in 2006, 2007, right ahead of the financial crisis. And so lived through the meltdown of my banking partners and saw sort of firsthand how fragile the financial system can be. And I'll circle back to that in a little bit when I talk about kind of the current state of kind of the SaaS debt financing market post SVB. But yeah, this brings back some memories, not always some some great memories. And I would say lately too, I've, I've just been talking with a ton of VCs Um, SaaS companies themselves, other lenders, folks at SVB to get just a little bit closer up perspective of of what's going on. And then more importantly, sort of where where do we go from here? So Todd, I expect a lot of first-time listeners to the Metrics Major podcast because of this special episode. So would you mind spending just another minute on what SaaS capital is and why it's so relevant to what we're going to be talking about for the next 30 to 45 minutes? Yeah, so SaaS Capital was a specialty or is a specialty lender still around. I, I sold my position three years ago, but we were the first dedicated lender into the SaaS marketplace. So SaaS Capital has lent to over 100 SaaS companies in the US, UK, Canada. And um, we're not a bank, but obviously all of our portfolio companies had banks. So we worked with you know, all the all the tech banks uh, on a very regular basis because we needed to coordinate with them, uh, you know, account control agreements and things like that. So, and then lately, I've actually been doing a fair amount of research and study on the general SaaS lending landscape, which includes SaaS capital, a bunch of new entrants, uh, and then obviously all the tech-oriented banks, including SVB. And again, we'll circle back to that a little bit later around what will be the impact of SVB exiting the market, obviously not only as a holder of deposits, but as a provider of capital into the tech space. 
Great. Well, thank you for the background. So let's take a step back and provide a good foundation for what's transpired over the last five days that led to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. So could you just kind of set up what's happened to get us to where we're at today? Sure. It's it's funny. Banks are very different from operating companies that we're all used to. Deposits are actually liabilities. So the balance sheet's a little screwy. And so let me just walk through it, hopefully in a way that makes it a little bit more clear. So as we know, the venture market's really taken off in, you know, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And all those venture dollars, you know, found their way into tech companies. And uh, half those tech companies deposited that money at Silicon Valley Bank. So the bank's deposits actually doubled over the last two or three years. And that's great and a good way, way to grow the bank. But they needed to do something with that money, right? That's how they make money. They, they get money in from depositors. And then either they loan it out or they invest it. And they lend out as much as they can. But the deposits came in so fast they put some of their money into bonds uh, and some of that money actually into very long-term bonds because they gave higher yields, right? So they're paying nothing on deposits. They're getting maybe a percent or two on the long-term bonds. It's not a great business model in that environment, but it works out okay. And then two things happen. One is we know all tech lending really stopped. You know, the, the tech uh, market crashed. And so new dollars stopped flowing into those companies. So as all those startups were burning money, their deposits were going down and interest rates were going up. And so the interest rates going up did two things to them. One, it increased the outflow of deposits because people could now find better rates other places. So instead of having their money stuck in a Silicon Valley bank account, they moved it to, you know, maybe a money market account at Vanguard. So that exacerbated the outflow of cash um, as deposits went down. It also made their bonds worth less money. And they were very long-term bonds, right? So as interest rates goes up, the value of those bonds goes down. So they had these deposits running off, which means they needed cash right, to, to, for people who were pulling money out of the bank. And so they were forced to sell their long-term bonds, and they had to take a write-down on those. And they, they sold a relatively modest amount and had to take a $2 billion write-down on those bonds. And what that did was it, it blew a hole in the balance sheet, right, because they took a loss and it got sucked out of their equity and the Fed said, hey, you need to show up your balance sheet, right? That's what they do. They try to make sure that these banks are well capitalized. And so SVB announced a capital offering, said, hey, we're going to go out to market and raise some money to shore up the balance sheet. And the timing was just really bad. One, it was a surprise to the market. Two, a smaller institution had failed like a week ahead of time. And so it spooked people. It was like, holy cow, what's going on at SVB? And that's when things really got weird. I mean, I, I would say one of the strengths of SVB was, and Ray, you had even commented on this before, was they were specialists in the tech space, but it really worked against them when this happened. And, you know, all of your borrowers and all your depositors in this case you know, they listen to the same people, they they play in the same LinkedIn threads, you know, they're following the same people on Twitter. 
And some VCs, uh, including some notable ones, said, hey, I would pull my money out of Silicon Valley Bank if I were you. And or more directly, hey, you're my portfolio company, pull your money out of Silicon Valley Bank. And once that started, that's a classic run on a bank. And it doesn't matter how you're capitalized at that point, you're dead. You know, no bank is holding cash equal to the amount of its deposits. And so, you know, that's when the FDIC stepped in last Friday and put a halt on things. But let me keep going. So, so the FDIC steps in and they take the weekend to kind of figure out what to do. And the ideal scenario is they sell the bank. And I've got some theories as to why it wasn't sold or isn't sold yet. But then the other thing they did, uh, and everybody knows this by now, you know, they came out and said, hey, regardless of how much you had deposited at the bank, we're going we're gonna to make you whole as a depositor. And you can withdraw that money today if you want, today being literally today. And that was very important, in my opinion, to stop potential other runs on banks of smaller, you know, tech lending institutions. And by the way, when the FDIC did that, they looked at SVB's balance sheet and said, you have enough assets to cover all these deposits. It's just that they're not liquid. So what the FDIC is doing is just saying, hey, we'll pay out the deposits today and collect the money from your assets over time. So in the case where they aren't able to sell it, which looks more and more likely every day, you know, they will collect loans and they will collect the bond payments over time and that will recoup all the money that they paid out to depositors. So in my opinion, there literally won't be any taxpayer money at risk. In fact, there won't be any FDIC money at risk it's just a timing difference that they're and a liquidity difference that they're solving for. It's interesting you say that because as I was doing our my research for a conversation, it was interesting on December 31st of 2022, they showed their filing that had $209 billion in total assets and of which $175 billion in total deposits. So it really seemed like they had almost 10, 15% more assets than they had total deposits that were a liability, right? That's exactly right. And one, and I won't get too far into this, but some of their bonds need to be marked to market, which means written down because of the change in interest rates, and some don't. So you really have to kind of peel back the financial statements to know what exactly their assets are worth. But even when you write them all down, there's something like an $18 billion cushion. Other people are doing calculations on this, although they probably stopped now because it's the FDIC's problem. But you're exactly right. Now, that doesn't leave much money for the lenders to SVB, and it leaves no money for the shareholders, but the, the depositors should be in, in good shape. And of course, now they are, and, and the FDIC likewise should now be in good shape. So we're going to go a little inside football here in the kind of high-tech capital ecosystem. And it starts with VCs, because VCs are a big part of this story, venture capital firms. And one of the data points I thought was really interesting is the decrease investments that pension funds, other limited partners who invest in VCs, how much it decreased in Q4 22. Because in Q4 22, we saw $20 billion invested in VC firms, 
but that was 65% less than in Q4 21. So there was about 50 billion invested in Q4 21. So that told me that a lot of the marginal VCs are more at risk, right? And thus their portfolio companies are going to be at risk if they need follow-on investments. So my question to you is, does that self-preservation acts of some VCs telling their portfolio companies, get your money out, i.e. make a run on Silicon Valley Bank, did that surprise you, number one? And number two, Todd, does that suggest that we need to have maybe a change in the startup financial ecosystem where there's not so many interdependencies between the venture firms, the banks, and the credit facilities? Wow, that's a, a lot to unpack there. So SVB was singularly unique, right? Half of the startups in the country were banking with them. And more than half of the venture firms were banking with them using what's called like a capital call line of credit. And so, yeah, that, that, that was probably, well, looking back on it clearly for them, having your source of your assets and your source of your liabilities from the same industry, you know, really caught up with them. I think the diversity of venture is a strength, right? So there will be less capital available for sure. That's just the very Darwin nature of the ecosystem. I think what's really interesting is pension funds trying to time when to get into venture and when not. <laughs> the lag times are so long, they're almost, you know, by definition going to get it wrong. It needs to be an asset class that you're either in, you know, or you're not. Trying to time ventures is silly. There's still a very large amount of dry powder out there. So that's good for the short term. But that's actually the first I had heard of that fundraising number. It doesn't surprise me. But it's sort of unfortunate because those might be classically the best vintage years because, because capital is, is scarce. Yeah. Yeah. So let's I know, did I answer all of that? I can't. Yeah. You, you answered the first part of it, but let's. I mean, telling. So you asked the question about telling companies to, to pull their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. So I'm a little conflicted on this. One is, you know, if you looked at SVB, there was no reason for it to go under other than this run on the bank. They mismanaged their treasury, no doubt, but it shouldn't have resulted in a, in a collapse. So you could say that they precipitated it. The defense is absolutely this, though, which is I'm the CEO, just take, do the CFO of the portfolio company. Forget about the VC for a second. You know, if I'm right and SVB doesn't go under, like, okay, who cares? But if I don't pull my money out and this had turned out much worse, meaning the feds didn't step in and there was no guarantee of that and their money's still frozen. I mean, even if it's like a three or 5% chance that, that you wouldn't be able to get access to your money, that's too big a risk, right? I mean, CFOs should not be playing with the company's money in any way, shape, or form. So I feel bad for Silicon Valley Bank. I think bank runs are going to be more common going forward because of social media and because of the lack of friction in moving money that used to be there. 
it, you know, you can do it with your cell phone now in, in 30 seconds. But I do not blame the folks who pulled their money out because had it gone differently, you know, they they would have absolutely done the right thing and potentially saved their company. So I agree. I don't blame the CFO for taking their money out because their job is to protect their company, their shareholders, and their employees. But one of the interesting things I found as a customer of Silicon Valley Bank when I was a CEO, right, we raised VC money. We wanted to put it in the bank, but we also wanted to have access to a line of credit because sometimes maybe you're drawing a line against revenue, but they made us have if we had a line of credit, we had to bank with yeah, them also. Yeah. Is yeah, that, do you think there's any conflict of interest there, Tom? So there's two components to that. One is um, enforcing that rule allowed them to have all these deposits and double the size of the bank. So there's economics around that. There's also a credit component of that, which is the only asset your little startup has, not little startup, but the only asset your startup has from a liquidation point of view is your cash. And so the only way for them to perfect a security interest in cash is to have it in their own bank. I should take that back. There's two ways. So, but your point is well taken. And I absolutely believe we'll see legislation and regulation around that. And I'll talk in a minute about addressing that specific topic if you're a CFO. But I think the banks can't say with a straight face anymore, hey, I'm, I'm lending you a million, you're depositing 10 million, and it all has to stay in my bank. One, the market is not going to accept that. And two, I think the regulators are going to push back on that. Well, that's a nice pivot point to, I wanted the theme of this discussion to be after we built this foundation. What lessons have we learned that SaaS CEOs and CFOs now can move forward with of how to mitigate their capital and financial risk going forward? So what advice are you giving CEOs and CFOs, Todd? Yeah, so I've I've talked to a number of CFOs. I've talked to uh, some VCs, you know, and and thought through this a little bit. I think the, the first thing is, you know, don't overreact. So this this was an out of the blue catastrophic event, but no companies are going to go under because of it, thankfully. So we should take mitigating steps, but still as the CFO of a startup or a growth stage business, you know, treasury management should not become the focus of your job, right? You should keep it simple and protect yourself. And and the, the easiest way to do that, just not have all your assets in one bank, right? It's as simple as that. So if you're not borrowing money, that's easy. You could put it in two banks, but that only does you so much good because the FDIC protection is only 250K. But two banks allows you to shift from one to the other very quickly. Like if you don't have another account somewhere, you have to set up that account in order to send money somewhere. So having multiple accounts matters. It can either be at two banks or in addition to that, in some sort of treasury money market account. And this would be something like a Schwab or a Fidelity or a Vanguard. You can do short, medium, or long-term, but if, if you're really just managing it for the company's capital, Schwab is a great just sort of treasury index. So they buy short-term treasuries. 
you know, you can like get your money out every day. You wouldn't want to use it as your checking account. You still need a checking account, but you know, you're taking no duration risk. You're taking very little credit risk, you know, and it's paying more than the bank's paying, right? So the rates on that are probably down because a lot of money is flowing into that today. But last time I checked, it was like, you know, four or 5%. So one or two bank accounts and a a Schwab or a, you know, a a treasury account. I was going to say, I invested in six month T-bill fund about two weeks ago and I got 4.8%. It's amazing, yeah. right? Which also created the issue, but anyhow, that's a non sequitur. So right. multiple right. bank accounts, alternative investment classes beyond just the checking your savings, treasuries that are liquid. What right. else? Right. What other advice? Don't overcomplicate it on the treasury side. I think that's fine. That's sufficient. Like treasuries aren't going to go to zero. Both banks aren't going to fail. You know, again, you can play around with, you could do treasury direct and get a little bit of higher rate. But again, don't be a hero as a CFO in an early stage business. Like your success and failure is more driven by your ability to sell software than it is, you know, your treasury management brilliance. If you're a borrower, and here's where I'm pivoting most of what I'm talking about now on LinkedIn is, okay, we've got the deposit situation sorted out do these simple things and, and you'll be in good shape. But the fact of the matter is between SVB and Signature and the amount of their loans and their commitments, you know, $150 billion worth of liquidity is coming out of the tech space, you know, on top of, you know, the VC contraction. So if you're a borrower at SVB, I would suggest reaching out very soon and trying to replace them. Again, more than likely not going to be sold. And if not sold, they're in liquidation mode. So like the line of credit you mentioned, Ray, I have direct knowledge that they will honor those, right? Those are usually annual commitments. You know, they're contractual, they have covenants, et cetera. If you go to draw down on your line, I believe it will be funded but it certainly won't be renewed. If you've got some sort of tranched loan facility, I think it's very likely those additional tranches won't happen. Now, the FDIC is in the business of winding down the assets, not running a bank, right? So they're not going to be, and and they absolutely won't be making new loans, right? So you've got sort of a dead man walking lender and it's possible it'll get acquired. It's a possible... Assets will get acquired and you'll have a new lender, but I would rather take the situation into your own hands and and choose your lender. Now, that's interesting advice. The, the, The bad news is, you know, some of the other tech banks have just been crushed today from a capital perspective. You know, I've talked to them and they've said all the right things and liquidity is good. And, you know, the Fed now has a new program to support them but they may be harmed, you know, over time. And then some of the new to the market SaaS lenders that have popped up in the last, you know, three to five years, you know, sometimes they have lines of credit from banks. Um, They might be backed by hedge funds who are getting nervous. So again, there's some correlations around that risk in the ecosystem. So the only point being there is, 
it's not like everybody except SVB is super healthy and rushing in to fill this void. Some are there and, and will be, but others are probably hobbled and maybe won't know what exactly their, their posture is for another you know, week or month. Yeah, I was listening to CNBC this morning. I know there's risk with doing that, but they're pretty good for having a lot of great speakers there. And it seemed like a lot of people are flying to safety, right? So to JP Morgan or Bank of America. And that makes sense for your banking relationship. But there's this new evolution of revenue credit facilities, which you helped create it for the SaaS industry. I know you've been doing a lot of research there, Todd. Is it good to have one or two of those kind of already where you're pre-approved? So if something happens regarding your standard back, you can just draw on that really quickly as an alternative? Yeah, so it, it depends. So yeah, one, I think that's a great idea. Some groups would not like have a standing pre-approval in place. You know, they go through the underwriting process and they want to put some capital to work and it's there's no money in you know, sort of offering free approvals to people where you do all the underwriting and then get nothing for it. But the, what I sort of call the contract financing folks. So this is Pipe, CapChase, FounderPath, a few others in that category. They do something like a pre-approval and final approval happens when you go to draw it down. But the good news is you, you can get it relatively quickly. The bad news is it's very expensive and short term. And none of those lenders is backed by a fund. So they're not backed by limited partners and capital contributions. They're backed by other financial institutions. And, and if you have the money in your bank and you don't plan on drawing more, it doesn't matter a lot, the financial stability of your, of your lender. But if you're reliant upon them for ongoing funding under like a line of credit facility, um, you should very much ask questions of them about, you know, where their money comes from. You know, that's a very open, honest, direct, and fair question of of any lender, that, you know, especially in this environment. Yeah. This might be a little bit out of your um, sweet spot, Todd, but I was looking at payroll, making payrolls an issue. And most B2B text early stage companies outsource their payroll to sure. companies sure. like Rippling or Zenefits. Some may go to even an ADP. Does a CFO and CEO need to actually worry about where their payroll company is banking? Or is that, this is a sure. one-time thing. They don't need to be well, that worried. Yeah. I mean, again, it, that's another potential source of risk. There's two sources of risk there. One is the payroll company itself. So occasionally those guys have funds go missing. (laughs) So there's fraud or mismanagement at the payroll company itself. And then obviously in the case where the payroll company in this case was using Silicon Valley Bank, you know, if that payroll was to be run when that bank was shut down, there's risk there. You know, it's a question you might ask. Here's the problem. Which banks are safe, right? If I asked that question a week ago, Silicon Valley Bank was on the list of, you know, the top 10 banks in the country and the regulators gave it, you know, passing, you know, flying. It's just, that's one of the real issues is it's almost, you know, in this case, the regulators missed it. 
the banking analysts on Wall Street missed it, let alone our depositors, you know, supposed to be able to weigh through all these reports and figure out, you know, is this bank at risk of going under? So, you know, I guess you can say, oh, it's got to be JP Morgan Chase or B of A or whatever, but big banks can go under too. So it's not, so I guess my point is, even if you ask the question, it's not always easy to tell if that's a source of risk or not, depending upon who the bank is. Todd, for all these conversations you're having with venture capital firms, other lenders, et cetera, any other really kind of tactical, practical advice you can give to a SaaS CEO or CFO today to make them feel safer about their bank accounts in the future? Anything else? Oh, specific. I wouldn't say specifically about their bank accounts. I would say, as I mentioned before, $150 billion of liquidity is being extracted from the tech community. So it just means everything that everybody's been talking about around capital efficiency, the rule of 40, blah, 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 is just heightened one more level because additional money just came out of the system. Todd, now you're talking something I understand a lot more about, and that's revenue growth efficiency, things like your CAC payback period or your CAC ratio or net revenue retention. So it sounds like just good, prudent revenue growth efficiency and understanding how you can get your cash runway from 18 months to 24 24 months to 36, or how you can pay back your new customer acquisition costs in 12 months versus 18, just basic financial 101 operating discipline, right? Yeah. And I would say that the new goalpost on runway is forever, right? It's break even. And, and the benefits of break even are tremendous, not the least of which is you have a very different relationship with your investors once you're at break even because you're not reliant upon their checkbook anymore. So I've done a bunch of posting lately and we'll do more around bootstrap companies and folks who've grown from zero to 20 to 50 million in revenue without any outside capital. So it is absolutely possible. I love that your final comment was about profitable, less durable growth, where you actually look at things like EBITDA that could be actually positive 1% versus negative 30%. Todd, I love it. Anything else you'd like to wrap up today with? Nope, that's it. Okay. Well, Todd Gardner, I really appreciate everything that you're doing online, providing really balanced insights and advice and how can people follow you what's the best place to follow your post really the only place to follow me right now is linkedin yeah just uh i got a ton of followers on linkedin just just connect with me there and you know i'm posting relatively frequently given this given this time period yeah and a, a shout out to another industry influencer nathan lotka um nathan is holding a big event in new york on wednesday and thursday called sas open with about 1,100 SaaS founders. And he actually recommended this podcast as a must listen for anybody who's trying to understand fiscal discipline and financial stability in the SaaS industry. So Todd, hopefully a lot of Nathan's fans will be following up and starting to follow you also. I'm, I am honored. <laughs> okay, Todd, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. And to our listening audience, please follow Todd Gardner on LinkedIn. 
And if you're enjoying our podcast, like this one where we've deconstructed the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and giving you practical advice on how to try to increase your own financial future, please follow the Metrics That Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating because that allows the podcast to be amplified from a distribution perspective and have other people benefit from our guests like Todd Gardner. Todd, thank you. And to our listening audience, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.